so my name is Chris. I'm filling in for Pastor Rob. I teach here at Alma Heights, actually, and went to Alma Heights uh, and grew up in Pacifica and uh, go to CV uh, Baptist in the back of the, valley, back of the valley and teach there as well. So this is still home, uh, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, let me just pray a brief word. Lord, uh, please speak to us through your word. Uh, help us to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, a Christian is someone who uh, believes in Christ, worships Christ, and follows Christ. Um, and we never really graduate beyond these things. We're always believing, worshiping, or following. Uh, we, you know, we might grow, or we might mature, or bear fruit, but we never arrive or get beyond that. Uh, in many senses, we're always beginners at believing anew and worshiping anew and following anew. And just like we never really graduate from the gospel, right? Uh, we're always saved by God's grace. Uh, it's never earned, it's always a gift. We never get beyond the simple gospel message that even in our deepest need when we're alienated from God by our sins and our failures, uh, God loved us. And then he sent Christ to rescue us. And that this grace is always for the asking. Uh, it's still the truest thing we know. Uh, and still, hopefully, the prime motivator of our affections. That we were lost, but by God's grace, now we're found, right? That, that we were enslaved, but now by God's grace, we've been set free. And it's, and it's God's kindness in the gospel that we see that the scriptures say leads us to repentance. Uh, turning from your sin and towards Christ. Um, I've got to get used to this thing that I can actually move. It's very, very freeing. So when I say turning, I can actually turn. Turning from your sin and towards Christ. I mean, and there's two different senses of repentance, right? There's that once and for all, big R, repentance. And then there's also this continuous type of repentance that we do as we live out our life in Christ. And repentance is a, is a stopping, right? Cease to do evil and turning and learn to do good. It's a ceasing to do this and you turn back towards. And, you, and it's really this honest assessment before the very face of God where you say, I'm not right. Right, my, my heart is not right. I love the wrong things. I've done the wrong things. I've merited the wrong side of God's justice. And then we say, Lord, I need help. Please rescue me from sin. Rescue me from Satan. Rescue me from myself. Rescue me from death. Please, Lord, I put my trust in Jesus. And if you've made that true confession, God forgave you, right? Uh, he became, Christ became your representative before God, so you're no longer in Adam, but you're in Christ. Right then and there, you're forever free from the legal penalty of sin, forgiven once and for all. Um, there was something in the songs about the, the vilest defender, um, you know, being able to come because of God's grace. Uh, and then after that once and for all, the received grace of God that we have that comes in here, it keeps on working on our heart. The Holy Spirit gives you holy discontent with the things that are still in your heart that harm your relationship with God or harm your relationship with others. And this is where the continuous repentance occurs. That the daily steps and habits of being honest with yourself and calling out to God for forgiveness. Not that you lost the big one, it's just that the relationship's been affected in some way. Or you know, there's some ways it's supposed to be growing that it's not. And we need this sanctifying grace. We need this daily stuff that comes through the channels of regular repentance. Um, it's often how we grow, right? You kind of spot out the trouble and then you head to the doctor and say, I need help with this, please. Um, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, he says, pervasive all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we're growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Um, and repentance, this daily type that I'm talking about, it happens in the context of seeking God in prayer. Uh, prayer is that gentle, crucible, deep heart change. 
And today we're going to consider a parable that Jesus taught about prayer and repentance. And it's in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. I think it's going to be projected up there, and if not, I'll just read it. And if you have a text, you can follow along as well. Um, it's short and it's simple, and it's, the passage is even interpreted in the text. It's also really, really well known. You've likely heard it before. And even if you haven't heard a sermon on it, you've heard it used as an illustration about a thousand times. Uh, but because of this familiarity, you may have stopped listening to it. Uh, you may have stopped listening it long ago. And so I'm going to encourage you uh, today to hopefully hear it anew. Because uh, it's always the words of Jesus. It's always the words of the person that we're supposed to believe, worship, and follow. And it's always scripture. And according to scripture, it's God-breathed and useful for training in righteousness, for training us in accordance with what's right and good and true. It's never stopped being the words of Jesus or scripture. And I'm convinced also, it's kind of a message we always need. Um, and God gave it to us for that. So I'm gonna read this text, perfect. Um, verse nine, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted, exalted. Amen? Um, there's a phrase that gets tossed around a bit, and it's about how the idea of truth, like real truth, it tends to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Have you heard that before? Um, I'm almost certain that we're usually in need of both of those things. Um, sometimes we have to kind of get knocked down and then lifted up and humbled and then exalted, dead and then resurrected. And I hope this parable, you know, in our hearts, uh, it afflicts us where we need to be afflicted, but also deeply comforts us where we need to be deeply comforted. Uh, I'm going to say a brief word about our two characters, and then we'll go line by line through this text. Um, at this cultural moment, there's the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And the Pharisees, these are the most pious religious sect. They're the most conservative, and they're the most literalist in their interpretations. And they're respected, and they're looked up to. They're kind of like walking definitions of, quote-unquote, righteousness. They're the holy men. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were essentially subcontractors uh, that they collected for a Gentile government. And not just any Gentile government, but th they represent the interests of the oppressors. They represent the interests of Rome. At this time, Rome is uh, in control of Israel. And um, to say that they weren't popular is a bit of an understatement. They weren't popular at all. And even worse, these tax collectors, they were given to abusing their power uh, for their own financial gain. So if Roman tax was 15%, I'm just making up these numbers, by the way. I didn't look this up. The Roman tax was 15%. They could charge 20, 23, 25, so that they could make an extra for themselves. And so any of the tax collectors that were rich and well-off, they were rich at the expense of their own brothers. Uh, and so, obviously, they were seen as traitors. They represented the interests of the oppressors. They worked for the enemies. They were despised. They were seen as snakes. Um, so much so that you see a common idiom in the New Testament. You're right? Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're in one group. They even get their own name. It's like all the sinners and the tax collectors, the worst sort. They're in this one grouping. If you would ask someone, hey, what's wrong with the world? Back then they might say, hey, people like tax collectors. That's what's wrong. People like this. And yet strangely, as you guys probably are very familiar with, Jesus is going to flip this cultural norm upside down. 
Um, when he shows up, his perspective is always a little different. Uh, and that's usually a really good thing. It's often the case. Uh, his perspective actually with the Pharisees were the worst sort. He accused them of putting on a religious show for, for people. And he actually gets really harsh. He says, you, you guys are kind of, you remind me of your father, Satan. Uh, and he says, and when you make converts, they're, they're double sons of hell. And on the outside, it's a very nice design, but inside, it's like the place of the dead. Um, and he even sends prophetic woes against them in Matthew 23. He said they're, they're lacking that true heart righteousness that God really delights in. Um, and you see, the great majority of the Pharisees, if you remember, they didn't listen to Jesus. Uh, in fact, they wanted to shut him up as quickly as possible. They didn't listen at all. And in the context, the most religious people in the world couldn't recognize God in their midst, which is a little bit scary, right? Uh, the tax collectors, on the other hand, Jesus agreed that they were sinners. He agreed that they were doing wrong, but then what did he do? He extended grace to them. He showed them compassion, and they listened. The Pharisees, the most religious, they didn't listen. They didn't have ears to hear, but the tax collectors, a lot of them listened. They believed, and they worshiped, and they followed. Why? Well, partly because they knew they had a problem, right? Um, they knew they were sick, so they sought the great physician. The Pharisees didn't imagine that they had any problems, so they excused themselves. You know, Jesus came for the sick, and they're, oh, well, then we'll get out of line. It's not for us. We don't need that. Um, this is a, a small aside, but perhaps we can increase the emotional weight of this parable if we, um, like to its proper proportion, if we substitute the tax collector with some modern analog. So something that, um, for them, if someone said, what's the problem with your society? They say a tax collector. Well, what if someone asked you that? What's the problem with your society? What would you fill in there? Uh, you know, would it be like, oh, it's the, the people that are hyper-liberal, or no, it's the people that are hyper-conservative, or maybe, no, it's those representatives of the LGBT community, or it's evolutionists, or it's, it's my, my dad. You know, it's like, who's the worst sort? Um, who takes the tax collector's spot for you? Because that'll help us get the weight of this to kind of get in that, that moment that how they might feel this. Um, we're going to go line by line now through this. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two very clear problems here. Number one, they trusted themselves, and therefore they're not trusting in God. Uh, they thought too highly of themselves, trusting in their own moral efforts to be right with God and right with man, establishing their own identity and security and meaning apart from God. And it doesn't work, right? It pushes your heart further from God, and as we'll see, it actually pushes your heart further from man, because number two, they treated others with contempt. Others who are not on their level. Others who are less than. They look down upon with disdain simply, right? They, they didn't love their neighbor as themselves. Uh, and these two problems are interconnected, by the way. The first feeds the second. If you have pride before God, it will not lead to right treatment of your neighbor. Uh, it only leads to the opposite. Uh, and then here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And remember, the cultural expectation, the Pharisee's the good guy, tax collector's the bad guy. But Jesus' version, as we know, is going to flip that so that we learn that even the most quote-unquote righteous person might be really very far from God. Whereas the worst, the most wicked, is able to draw near to him in faith. Um, and verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. God, I thank you. Uh, that's a great start, by the way, right? And that's usually prayers of gratitude are the, the right sort of ones, and they're usually hard to mess up. It's a really good start, but as one commentator says, what does he do? He glances at God, but then he contemplates himself, um, right? He, he, he's making sacrifices at the altar of self, 
kind of the subtlest of idols. It's all about him. And he says, thank you that I'm not like other men, that I'm so much better than other people, that I'm so good, that I'm superior, that I'm on a higher plane, that I'm more attractive, that I'm more intelligent, that I'm more successful, that I'm more religious, that I'm more socially aware. His version, summarized by John Piper, he says, thank you that I'm financially honest, I'm just in my dealings, and I'm faithful to my wife. Thank you that I'm morally upright and good, that I meet the standard that I have arrived. I've made it. And then he goes on further, verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. And this is way above and beyond the requirements of the law, actually. Uh, They're supposed to tithe from their crops, not necessarily tithing of everything that they received. And there was a yearly fast, one year, once a year requirement, and he's fasting twice a week. And he holds it up before God as a signal of his true piety and commitment, says, look how good I am. Uh, You guys haven't gotten here in Matthew, but in Matthew 23, Jesus is addressing a group of Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier parts of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. I mean, they were fastidious beyond necessary with the lesser parts of the law. Then they're really missing the whole heart of it. Um, you know, it's like I go, I go to church nine times a week, but I hate most people. You know, like you're looking in the wrong spot. And they were tithing mint and dill and cumin. This is herb garden tithing. I mean, this is like, can you imagine cutting like 10% of your little chai grass and bringing it to the temple? That's exactly what they're talking about. And that's fine. That's great that they want to be pious in that way. But they're majoring on that while neglecting real people. They're majoring on that while neglecting love of neighbor. And they have no concern for true justice and true mercy. See, the Pharisee is so intoxicated with his own virtue that he doesn't see things right anymore. He's no longer able to. He's drunken on self-conceit. And notice who's fallen out of the prayer by the end, right? God doesn't seem to be around much in this prayer except at the very beginning, and then he kind of falls out of focus. The real focus here is the Pharisee's, his own, his own self, right? And he's saying, thank you that I'm in the light while he's really stumbling around in the darkness, which is kind of a scary proposition, right? Because he doesn't seem to be aware of the awful state of his heart. Uh, he feels very confident before God, in fact, and the dramatic irony is, as, as us as readers, we see the self-assured one, the real confident one, he doesn't leave the temple in right standing. And he doesn't seem to know. For all of his religious knowledge and wisdom and discipline, he's, he ends up blind and foolish. It's like this quote, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah elsewhere in Matthew, and he says, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are actually very far from me. Um, now, this is an exaggerated character here, this Pharisee. Uh, so in some ways, perhaps it's really easy to disassociate from him because it's like, well, I'm never going to be like that. So it's easy to disassociate from him. Um, but I'm going to ask you soon enough to consider that uh, some of the ways of our heart might be nearer to his than we'd like to admit. And I'm going to ask you at least to consider that at some point. Um, J.C. Ryle says one of the great defects of this prayer is that it exhibits no sense of need. There's no request for grace, no awareness of him falling short. And that's part of the family disease of humanity, right? To say, well, I'm not nearly as bad as such and such, so I think I'm good. Or I gossip from time to time, but not nearly as bad as that person. In fact, I'm much better than most that I deserve. And when that's starting to sneak into your heart, there's, there's some, some subtle things that are going to, it's really wrong-headed, right? I mean, it's, it's not, I just do a little bit less than that person. No, it's, it's like a poison. Like a, just a little poison spoils the whole milk. You know, it's, it doesn't take much to just kind of sneak in there. And see, he doesn't ask God for grace because he doesn't think he needs it. And this failure then makes him very uncharitable to his neighbor. 
He doesn't ask God for grace because he doesn't think he needs it. He loves himself. He doesn't love God or others. His affections are dangerously disordered so that he looks on his neighbor with disdain or contempt for not being as good as him, not being as right as him. J.C. Ryle again says, in short, he says, this hardly deserves to be called a prayer at all. Um, And I think I agree with him. But we've got a nice one coming. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Matthew Henry says, in pride we fell, but in humility we return. Um, And with this tax collector, we see several tokens of humility. And they're not prescriptive tokens. These aren't instructions for how you need to be in church every day. These aren't, but they are, they're descriptive. Uh, but there's some principles for us, I think. Number one, he stands far off. The Pharisees, you know, likely in the center. But for the tax collector, this is not a show for other people. He actually feels he doesn't belong in the presence of God. Number two, he doesn't lift his eyes because he's downtrodden. He's aware of his great guilt. His face has fallen And number three, he beats his breast, which is a symbol of contrition. Well, we learn elsewhere in the scriptures that the sacrifices that God is pleased with are what? A broken spirit. And the humble and contrite heart he will not despise. And we learn elsewhere that the Lord is gentle with the humble and that he's near to the brokenhearted. Or when they talk about the suffering servant Isaiah, that a bruised reed he will not break, but he lifts up. The person who's bowed down, he doesn't then break, he lifts them up. And so this leads into this very short prayer God, have mercy on me, the sinner that I am. Um, this man who the crowd would have seen as the worst sort of men, he sees things as they actually are. He sees things truly. He's honest, and therefore, he, he has a right posture in the presence of God. And what he's doing, he's repenting. And the result of this in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, The word justified, we say that a lot. It's a legal metaphor uh, that you've been declared in right standing, that you've been acquitted of charges, that you're in right relationship with God. Uh, The tax collector's plea for mercy is answered in abundance. He leaves justified. I think of 1 Peter 5.5. It says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, Listen to that. God is opposed to the Pharisee but gives abundant grace to the tax collector. Um, It's that simple gospel element again, right? The one who repents is forgiven. The one who asks finds. The one who, oh, sorry, the one who asks receives. The one who asks finds. The one who knocks the doors open unto him. Uh, But the one who doesn't even ask, who doesn't think he has a heart problem at all, he doesn't receive. His heart's not right yet. And I don't think it's like this hoop that we have to jump through. I think it's actually that nothing else can really grow in the soil of our hearts until we've seen our need and are humbled. Um, now, at this point, perhaps, and I hope not, but perhaps you're already thinking, Lord, I thank you that I don't need to hear this sermon. <laughs> that I am a Christian, and I have been for some time now, And I've already learned this long ago, that this sermon doesn't apply to me anymore. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That I'm not like other people who are vain and prideful and self-righteous. That I don't have the pharisaical heart, therefore I don't need to hear this critique. Thank you. (laughs) See, no one ever sees themselves as the Pharisee. But I want you to entertain the possibility that you're not the good guy in the story. Um, And I know when we watch movies, we associate with the good guys. You're never like, oh, I really, you know, I really feel like I'm on the bad guy. No, we always, you know, see ourselves in the good guy, 
we have things to learn from both sides in this story. And don't excuse yourself so quickly there. Your comfort might need to be disrupted a little bit because you might have heart problems that you're not aware of because the Pharisee didn't know. He was ignorant of the distance. And we need to entertain the possibility we might be in a similar state, even if it's lesser degrees. Uh, J.C. Ryle, again, a commentator I really like, uh, he says, pride, self-conceit, and a disposition to look down on others as ignorant, blind, and inferior to ourselves are faults to which many converted people are peculiarly liable. He says, it's an easy temptation for Christians to look down on others. I mean, you've probably experienced that before, whether yourself or seen it in others. I mean, Christians, we're supposed to believe the truth, and we gobble it up about all sorts of topics, right? Making sure we and our kids have a Christian worldview, you know, not poisoned by the world, and yet very often we refuse to believe the actual truth about ourselves and our heart. Uh, you know, that's why sometimes we're not so good at discussion because we've already claimed the monopoly on all truth while being kind of oblivious of some stuff going on in here. Um, there's this pastor in England and he's, he's writing about uh, fundamentalism of a really dangerous sort and he says it always kind of goes like this. You start with number one, this is true. This is a true thing. And then number two, we are right. And then number three, we are winning. And then number four, we're better. Uh, and then at that point, you're looking, you've, you've, you've gotten to some dangerous territory, and it's very easy to slip into. And, and this is part of why Jesus is telling this story. I mean, why did Jesus tell this story? Well, the text tells us at the beginning, firstly, to afflict the comfortable. The Pharisee thought he was all set. I'm not like other men. And he's not afflicting him to be mean, right? He's not just like being mean to, to be mean. He's doing it to expose and save. He's doing it to give a proper diagnosis, like here's the cancer, now let's have it out. That's what's going on here. If there was a cure, wouldn't you want the proper diagnosis? Yeah, that's yes, right? I mean, okay, I'm just... Uh, the problem is the proud rarely get this far because they don't think there's a problem. They've already got it sorted and, you know, don't tell them otherwise. They've already figured it all out. Um, are you open to the possibility that you might be wrong about some things, even some things about yourself? Uh, do you look down on other people? whether it's different races or economic class or people that have different moral values or political views or cultural practices or parenting styles or work ethics and you look down at them with contempt? Or the big question, do you see t the tax collectors in your world with disdain rather than compassion? Uh, Jesus saw the weak and sick, not as enemies, but as brothers. Uh, do you recognize your kinship and the brotherhood of all men, right? We're all fallen. And if you're in Christ, you're all saved, but you're all saved the same way. By grace through faith. Through faith, did I get it right? I think so. And the ground of the cross is level, right? And so there's no posturing above each other, no looking down at each other because we're all saved in the exact same way. I mean, this is uh, the apostle Peter and Paul, they figured this out because there was these Gentiles and they weren't following the law of Moses yet and yet the Holy Spirit came upon them when they believed in faith. And they say, wow, God accepts just on this faith, everyone the same. And so there's no spot for us to look down upon. It's, it's all level. Uh, and and going on with this series of questions, are, are you trusting in something else for your salvation? Finding your value, security, meaning in something besides the grace of God? Whether that's your career or your children or your own accomplishments or your relationships or the classic example we have here, trusting your own goodness and religious observation. Maybe you know the right forms of I'm saved by grace on paper, but you still haven't learned it in your gut, in your heart. It's not the operating principle of your life yet. You're still trying to establish some empire of self. I mean, how is that working out for the Pharisee? And the answer is really not that well. Um, because it says he wasn't justified in the end. 
Uh, and it's clear that he has no love for his neighbor. And so he's very far from God and he's very, very far from men. And he only has love for self and self-love only ever gets you just that. Um, and if you asked him, what would he say? He'd say, everything is good in my heart. I am in right relationship with God. Take a look at my righteous deeds. But he's not looking in the right spot, correct? Um, the most dangerous forms of indwelling sin are the ones that we don't recognize as sin. The ones that hide in our emotional blind spots. The Pharisee here, he treated his formal piety as a signal that everything was all good. And don't get me wrong, it's important, right? Like, we ought to tithe. We ought to go to church. We ought to pray. These things were important things that he was doing, but we need to know it's not the right meter for our heart's health before God. Like I said, you could go to church nine times a week and still have no devotion to Christ whatsoever in your heart. It's like a friend, you know, they're riding in the back seat and they look up and you're driving and they say, hey, are you running out of gas? And you kind of look at the oil pressure and you're like, nope, it's right in the middle as always. This is the best car I've ever had. Like, keep on. You know, it's like you're looking at the wrong meter. Um, his external righteousness, his goodness, that it was distracting him from the real badness of his heart. He's looking at the wrong meter. Where should he have looked? Maybe he should look how he treats his neighbor, right? Um, the one he looked down upon, because the summary of the Old Testament law, according to the Apostle Paul, was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so maybe he needs to look there. And so maybe if we're saying, you know, I'm not like this Pharisee, we also need to look at our love. Uh, are you growing in love for other people? Not the selfish type of love, the actual giving, sacrificial type of love. Uh, are you growing in love for people who are different from you? That might be a little difficult. Are you growing in love for your enemies? And if not, there's a chance that if we chase the symptom back, you, there might be parts of our heart that are closer to the Pharisee than we'd like to admit. Because your, your posture before God will affect the way you treat other people. So look to how you treat your family. Look to how you treat your fellow church members and coworkers and friends and the strangers among you and the poor. Uh, this might be worth checking out because he, he, love can't run right without humility. Uh, proud people aren't good at loving because love can't run very well on pride. The arrogant don't love well because it's got to be about them and love's all about doing good for the other. And so you can kind of start on one end and work your way back and maybe find something you didn't know about. I mean, this is the litmus test for growth in Christ, are you more loving? Are you more forgiving? Are you more kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you? Um, pride is opposed to love. Pride is opposed to grace. Pride is opposed to growth. It doesn't listen, it does not change, it's fixed, it's settled, it's arrived. God is opposed to that. Being the fixed heart, God is opposed to that. Humility is the soil in which true heart righteousness can actually grow in which love can grow. It's able to repent and to be honest as things things right, and it says God gives grace there. And that's the other reason why he told this story, right? Jesus told the story because God gives grace. Not only does it afflict the comfortable, but hopefully it's gonna comfort the afflicted, right? Uh, we can't leave the story without the end, which is the tax collector, he was afflicted with the truth of his own sin. There was a real evil that had to be dealt with in his heart, and yet he, he's the one who goes home justified. Uh, the one who seemed like he had no hope, who didn't trust in himself, goes home justified because he repents. He's open to the possibility he's dead wrong. Um, notice, too, one of them has very positive feelings in church and doesn't go home justified, and the other guy has very negative feelings in church about himself, and, and he leaves in right relationship with God. And you might say, wait, is that right? Um, 
are you telling me I should always be the, like, the tax collector? Um, and I'm going to say yes and no. Because um, following, following Christ is a path of deep joy. He says in John 15, right, that I've, I'm telling you these things so that you may have my joy and you may have it to the full. So it's, the thing, it's about joy, and yet the posture of the tax collector, that there's no other source of salvation but God, he's aware of his own fallenness, he's humble and contrite, and he's prayerful, we should be those things all the time. Um, we should be like that every day. But must one beat their breast and not look up into heaven all the time and kind of be wallowing like that? I don't think so. Uh, shame and guilt have their proper functions, right? Um, in the scriptures, there's a thing called godly sorrow, and it leads to repentance. It leads to getting your head lifted up by a gracious father. Because it's all right to feel ashamed if you've done something shameful. But we start getting mixed up there, and what happens is we start living in the shame, abiding in the shame rather than abiding in Christ. We get mixed up, and we start having this perpetual sense and the heaviness of this burden of guilt. And if I had... a a louder disposition, I might shout, but just imagine it. I say, no, right? Jesus came to free us from that sort of thing. We're not supposed to abide in our shame. Proper shame moves our heart right back to Jesus. Uh, sinful shame makes us sit in it, makes us kind of wallow and dwell on how terrible we are without ever looking up for mercy. We stay with our head down and we don't cry out. Uh, it doesn't move us towards God. It, it moves you away from him to, to self-loathe. And God doesn't want that. The truth and love of God over and over in the scriptures is such that it reaches to the pride and conceited over here and it reaches to the self-loathing over here and it pulls them into center. The gospel always does that. It grabs the people from the extremes and pulls them into the center. I mean, ought you to have remorse for your sin? Absolutely. And for your selfishness, yes, but that remorse must lead you to Jesus. You're not supposed to live in it. The death leads to a resurrection and in the parable, remember, the end, his head gets lifted up because it says, I tell you the truth, this man went to his house justified. It says that the humble get exalted. The end tells us so that this is good news. But only after he recognized his sin in great need. Uh, J.C. Ryle, again, he says, we're never actually in the way of salvation until we realize that we're lost, ruined, and guilty, and helpless. Uh, one of my favorite quotes by Tim Keller, he says, the prerequisite to receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. Amen. He says, you gotta know you need it. Um, and the comfort of the story that even for the very worst of us, uh, God's grace is for the asking. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Um, whether that's big S salvation, or maybe you're a Christian, but you become aware of some deep heart sin, well, what, do you, what then? Uh, it's the same start. Uh, cry out to him. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. Um, repent, and, and, and hopefully, I'm not hopeful, I don't want to say it like that. Repent and receive his grace anew and cherish it. Um, let me tell a little story. Um, I was recently, this, when I say recently, it could have been a year ago, I can't even remember, but I was, I was at this dollar store, a very large dollar store, and I was picking up these last minute knickknacks for my nephews. I have several little nephews. They run around the hillside here. Um, and I can't even remember what event was for, but I didn't want to be there. I remember that very clearly. And there were just a ton of people everywhere, and the lines were absurdly long and very, very slow, and it was a mess. And there was little kids running around, and they were crying and yelling and throwing stuff, and there's people talking loudly on their cell phones, and I'm kind of sensitive in the ears. And there's people buying groceries, and so they had these carts at the dollar store, and it's like, that must be $200 that you're buying. It's a dollar, like just so much stuff. And I'm right behind this person. I have like three little, like, like a nunchuck, you know, for my, my nephew. And everyone there is speaking different languages. 
and everyone seems to be from a different economic class, and some of them kind of just kind of just seem like zombies moving around and, and unfashionable, and some of them seem very poor, and some of them seem like they had very poor hygiene, and some of them seem like they had very poor health. And in the darkness of my heart, I thought, I don't belong here. Um, I'm other than this, they're other than me. Why is everyone here in my way? I've got things to do as I'm looking down at my watch. Um, right? And that has hints of racism and ethnocentrism and moralism and classism and all the isms, right? And I didn't, I didn't see them the same as me. I, what I was doing is I was looking down with contempt. And the Lord convicted me right then and there because right, Jesus accepts people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every race and every class and every moral background. And so why, I, I, don't, I don't have a warrant to prejudge these people. But in my heart, I was saying, let me out of here. I can't believe you're buying 200 items in front of me. Like, let's at least swap. Like, but it was like, get me back to the land of the living. Get me back to the cool and the comfortable and the well-off and the important. But the reality is that there are people just like me, right? And the only difference is that some of their lives are probably a lot harder than mine. Um, and they're just trying to get by and get on with their days, and I'm actually the one in the way. Uh, but I was looking down on them, saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. Um, as if everything I had wasn't actually a gift from God, right? And this is wrong. Um, George Orwell, he has this thing about how it's, he says it's really easy to love the needy on paper. You know, you write it down. It's like, he's like, everyone loves to talk about loving the needy. He says, but you don't actually, he says, why don't they actually go out and help and, and love them? He says, he says, simply, he says, they smell bad. That was his answer. He says, they're different and it impinges on your comfort, your sense of comfort, and so you don't want to deal with it. It's like, oh, I don't like being around them. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And you know, surely our comfort and leisure is, you know, number one priority. Because that's the way our heart operates so often. I mean, who do, who do you maybe look down on with contempt or with disdain rather than love, compassion, and kinship? And our self-righteousness, it seldom sounds like the Pharisees. I don't think any of us are actually up there, you know, like, thank you, Lord, that I'm so much better than people. Uh, mine was just, in the things I was saying is, I'm in a rush, I need to get out of here. I wish there was no lines. That's all I was saying, but there was darkness in my heart. Ours usually takes much more dis, um, defensible forms. They're very respectable, right? We don't say, I'm very arrogant. I tend to look down on other people. Uh, I tend to see myself as way more important than everyone else. No one says that, but that might be the operating principle of our heart. We say things like, I've got important things to do, or I've worked hard to get where I am, or I'm a straight shooter. I just call them as I see them, or it's my personality, or I was raised this way, or um, you know, I'm educated, or my parents taught me to be this way. You know, we, we, we have some way of hiding from it. Or maybe something good happens to someone else, and we say, why didn't that happen to me? Uh, why did it happen to them? And we're essentially doing this sim- a similar thing, right? Or we say, thank you, Lord, that my... We don't say, actually, thank you, Lord, that my phone doesn't go off in church like those people. <laughs> or that my kids are not as crazy as theirs. Um, you're not saying the wrong thing, maybe, but, but the way you feel in your heart towards that person is the same family. Or people that have inclinations towards racism, they don't usually say, hey, I'm a, I'm a racist, nice to meet you. They say, what? They say, it's not that I'm racist, it's just that I think, and then they dress it up in some way to make them feel okay about it. But God sees through all of that. And the deepest sins of our heart are usually, they're, they're hiding pretty well because sin is a destructive force and it wants to master us. We learn this really early in the Bible and it's, it's subtle and it's trying to sneak in the back door. So we have to stay humble before God. We have to be open to the possibility that we might be dead wrong about lots of things. That we've yet to encounter the worst parts of our heart. But thanks be to God, he's seen it all.
right? He's seen the very worst parts of hearts and if, of our hearts, and if you're in Christ, he's absolutely forgiven you. But now what he wants to do is he wants to love you unto change. But in order for that to happen, the heart has to remain humble. It must remain as a child, like it was when you first believed. Because uh, just like before, we don't graduate from humility before God. We never graduate from humility before God. In the context in Luke, and we're wrapping up here in a second, in the, in the context of Luke, if you look around this passage, there's a parable about persistent prayer. There's a parable about humbly praying. There's a story of coming to Jesus like little children. There's the, a bunch of uh, lowly people being uh, heard by God. Zacchaeus repents. And then there's a blind man, another beggar of grace, and he says, what, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, right? We never graduate from this posture of being childlike and like this blind man, son of David, please have mercy on me. See, the pride of the Pharisee in our story, his thinking that he didn't need help kept him very far from God um, and from man. And when we saw that, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And maybe, uh, as, as we've been thinking and meditating on this text, you start to say, okay, maybe I, maybe I do have some pride in my heart. Well, now what? How, how, do, I, how do I get humble? Um, well, the first thing is right back to the gospel, uh, right back to where we started. Um, it's not just a door to get in. It's actually got to be the operating principle. It's got to be the central truth. You, gotta, you might have it in your mind, but you haven't yet learned to get in your heart and your affections. Uh, and the gospel believed and cherished, the good news of what Jesus, God has done for you in Jesus, it will humble you. And so you might just have to go back and meditate on that and believe and cherish again. And, and while you're doing that, you'll notice that there's always a pattern for how we ought to love one another embedded in the ways that God has loved us. So just as he accepts people without those class divisions that we might set up, so we learn that we're also supposed to do the same. Just as he forgives freely, so also we learn that we do the same. Just as he lays down his life, so also we learn to do the same. There's always a pattern there. And so if you learn to meditate on the gospel and treasure it as the truest and most life-giving thing you know, uh, it will lead to love. And it will kill pride, and it will defeat self-loathing. It will bring you low, but then it will lift us up, right? And thanks be to God for that. Number two, we need to pray. Number one, go back to the gospel. Number two, start praying, right? Here's some prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We got that one from the parable. I stole it. It's a good one. It might be one of the best ones. Uh, Lord, Help me in my unbelief. That's another good one. Lord, thank you for showing me mercy. Lord, thank you for the change your mercy is now affecting in my heart. Lord, draw me near to you. Lord, teach me how to love. Lord, show me my sin. Show me the, the darkest parts of my heart. Show me the plank in my... Help me to be open to the truth, even if it really, really hurts. The idea is ask him for everything and then thank him for everything because it's hard to take credit when you're constantly giving it to him. And so if you're asking for everything and thanking for everything, you're, you're, you're establishing the right posture before God. And the third thing I was thinking of, you know, you go back to the gospel and then, and then habituate yourself to praying and asking and thanking him for all these things. And then the third one is, is you've got to practice true virtue. Um, he, this guy was really distracted by cutting the, you know, the chives um, and, and he was neglecting real people around him. He was ne neglecting the, the real heart of the matter. Um, your right standing with God will lead to right treatment of neighbor. But it has to be practiced. And all the Christian virtues are like this. And they're all connected, right? When you grow in one, you're gonna see the others start getting strengthened. It's like this interconnected series of tendons and muscles. And you've likely noticed this, right? Have you ever met people that are really, really patient? And you happen to notice that they're also really, really kind? 
and then really, really kind people, um, they seem to be thankful all the time. And really, really thankful people seem to, to be humble. And humble people seem to really love people well. And people that love well seem to be very generous, right? And you see these, these things are all connected. They, they grow into each other. Uh, it, we need to practice them uh, while believing, worshiping, and following Jesus and practice it till it becomes a habit of our heart. And so we're not even thinking about it. It's just who you are. You've just, you follow Jesus and follow Jesus and follow Jesus in that way and it's become who you are. Because uh, if you're growing in Christ, if you're humbly trusting in him naturally, you're, you're gonna grow to love other people. But if you're trusting in yourself, you might be growing in religious practices or um, religious habits or religious knowledge, um, but you might be really missing the heart of it, kind of like the Pharisee. Uh, you might be trending towards the Pharisee even. And, and if so, then go to, go to the Lord, right? This isn't a redemptive system. This is a personal God and you're called to go to him. And, he, and he'll hear because this is a message of good news, right? And if you do go home feeling bad about yourself, make sure that it leads you to Jesus. Um, my, my final thought, uh, there's this old hymn that I was thinking about and I can't remember the name and I really ought to have looked it up but I just didn't. Um, and it's, and maybe someone will know it, uh, but I think it's an obscure one. And Christ is actually hanging on the cross, and the, the hymn writer comes walking along the path, and uh, as soon as he sees Jesus, they lock eyes. And this look of Jesus is really affecting, like as soon as he sees him, they lock eyes, and immediately the songwriter knows that it's his fault that Jesus is up there. He just immediately has this sense that it's my fault this, this innocent man is being killed. And he's afflicted, and he's kind of racked with guilt, but then in that same moment, there's this simultaneous look, right? These same eyes communicate to him. It's this exact same look, that, that, and he's looking to the eyes of Jesus, um, and he, he has this deep sense that he's loved and forgiven more than he could possibly imagine. And it's a single look, but it has this simultaneous effect, this simultaneous effects. And it's like while he's beholding the very face of God, while he's beholding the very love of Christ, he's afflicted and yet comforted, Right? He's, he's knocked down, he had exalted, he's exposed and then fully embraced. And I, I, I have trouble articulating this idea, but I think it's so true that when we draw near to the very presence of God um, and we're asking for mercy, we have that, that, that kind of dual look from Christ that we know that we're fallen and humble before him and yet immediately embraced, um, rescued, right? And we're brought low so that the good stuff can begin anew in our hearts, Right? And then he's picking us up in his grace. And when he's doing that, it, we'll notice that he'll cleanse us of pride and it'll enable us hopefully to, to love people well. Now, let me pray for us.